This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today are Dan, is Dan Cannabis and Wei Rang. Are y'all ready to be great today? Yes, yes. Dan is a co-founder and portfolio manager of Triple Summer Advisors, LLC. Dan brings institutional asset management, wealth management, and class service experience to the team. Wei is a co-founder and lead portfolio manager for Triple Summer Advisors. He brings over 15 years of security selection, portfolio construction, and risk management experiences in the investment industry. So thank you two for doing this today. So first question, something probably very basic. On your LinkedIn profile, it has your name, it has the letter CFA, CFP. Like, what do those mean? Is that like something important? Is that, is that like a certification? Like, do you just put those letters on the back of your name? Is that some kind of process to go through to get that? Yeah, I'll talk about the CFP designation and then uh, I'll let Wei talk about the CFA designation because Wei has had the CFA designation for much longer than I have. Um, so on the CFP side, Certified Financial Planner, it means that you have a certain amount of uh, experience doing financial planning work. Um, and also you've passed a, a, a course and an exam uh uh, that's been set up by the financial planning board. Um, they, they offer this, uh, this designation, a certified financial planner. And the designation in and of itself doesn't mean that I'm superior to anybody or way superior to anybody in terms of our abilities. It just that we've, we have a certain amount of experience that you can trust has been verified. And then also we, you know, pass the standards for the exam ethics, things like that, according to the CFP board. So that is um, just one way to signal our commitment to uh, what we do for a living, uh, what Triple Summit Advisors does and the standards we try to hold ourselves up to. Okay. And it, it, CFA, uh, which stands for Charter Financial Analyst, uh, that's a similar designation to CFP, except that it's much more focused on uh, stock analysis and uh, investment portfolio management, risk analysis, things of that nature, you know, things related to how to manage a portfolio of stocks, how to analyze stocks using various methodologies. So it's, it's, a, it's you know, a, a much deeper dive into a very you know that particular subject and you know it's a little bit more rigorous than a cfp exam um, you know there's you have to take three total examinations and you can only take the, the subsequent one after you pass the first one and uh you know so it's uh, yeah, it's quite rigorous and uh you know i, I think i echo that sentiment it's just like you know it doesn't just because you have the cfa designation doesn't mean you're sort of like quote unquote better then somebody who doesn't have it, it's more of an indication that uh, of somebody who's willing to put in the time and put in the work to learn the subject area. And so I, I view it as more of a, a mark for uh, diligence as opposed to anything else. Because obviously, in terms of industry knowledge, 
you get a great foundation, but that is always you know changing as time progresses. So uh, you know it's, it's incumbent on people to keep up with industry knowledge, and that's sort of like you know not specifically uh, sort of like demanded by uh, the CFA board at this point in time. So, do you do you two happen to know what percentage of people in the industry have each one of these designations? Oh gosh, I, I have no idea uh, what okay. the percentage is. Okay. Yeah, it's. I, I would say there's you know. Uh, based on there are probably a, a couple hundred thousand people worldwide with the, the CFA designation. And then for the CFP designation, that would be think like a little bit, like probably between a hundred and 200,000, something. Yeah, it, like. I, I'm not sure, but that sounds uh, directionally right to me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So next question. And uh, this is a question you might not be able to answer, but like, and I, and I, and I know you two do not do this. And, and this, it just like recently, like at least once a week, and sometimes like once a day, I get a, a, a connection on LinkedIn from some financial advisor. You know, I accept everyone's kind of request and request, right? And sure enough, every one of these people within a day send me like this, like uh, synopsis. Let's go over your financial plan. Let's do this. Let's do that. I'm like, dude, like, or whoever you are, you, you don't really know me. You, you know, like, why? And, and this, and I know you industry, all industries, like, it's getting really bad now. Like, people reach out on LinkedIn, like, you know, doing this, like, or splash and play, what do you want to call it, right? Like, why do these people do this, you think? And like, does, I, I mean, no one I know actually buys off this, right? But people continuously do it, right? So is it working somehow? Or what do you think? What's your thoughts on that? I, I have two thoughts on it, which is that uh, one, it's almost costless for them to reach out to you this way, right? It's, it does, if it doesn't cost them anything, then uh, for some people, why not do it? They don't care about their personal brand. They don't care about... Um, the, the, the social capital they might destroy doing this. They, they, they see it as a numbers game. That's kind of thought A. And then thought B is if they happen to land you uh, as a client, someone who's very connected like you or somebody else who has a particular influence over a group that they want to get to know, then they get to say to everybody else in that group, hey, I, Jason Cadness is my client, assuming you've given them permission to say that. Um, Jason Cadness is my client. And all of a sudden, that sort of uh, proof point is enough for them to land a lot more clients from people in your network or at least start the conversation. And so that sort of thing is very, very valuable to a services provider, um, whether a financial advisor, CPA, attorney, whatever it might be, that inherent uh, referral or that kind of that's an implicit referral, I should say. Um, very, very valuable. And so I think those are the two reasons I can see why they do it. Um, low cost and the, and the high upside of the uh, implicit referral way. Do you have any thoughts on this? No, I absolutely agree with you. I think this is just a, uh, a evolution of marketing at, at its finest. It used to be people, you know, send mails, physical mails. So we still do get it. We get it every single day, right? And then it, it was cold calls. Right, that, that that was exemplified in sort of Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street, right, and Boiler Room, movies of that nature. And then subsequently, it was, it was emails, and everybody, you know, now now we know what a spam folder is because of the vast amount of emails that we get. I think you know, reaching out on LinkedIn is just a more uh, honed in, focused evolution of that, and it's sort of like, it's it's sort of a little bit unfortunate. It's really hard for folks to cut through the noise and try to forge connections with advisors that may offer something of, you know, of value, but you know, that's just a state of play in the market these days. So. So how did the two of you meet? What's the backstory on that? Yeah. So, 
Uh, we both went to Harvard and with class of 04 and class of 05, um, ways, uh, uh, the smarty pants of the group. And he graduated in four years with a master's degree as well as an undergraduate degree. Um, and we met through a on-campus organization called the Asian American Brotherhood. It was founded a few years, um, or by folks who are a few years ahead of us, uh, at Harvard. And they saw that the Asian American community at the time was quite quite disjointed. Um, different groups were kind of stuck with different groups. So you'd be friends with people, but there was no kind of uh, coordinated Asian American uh, voice. And so uh, they found it and it's grown to be a really, really um, big, not in the sense of a lot of members. It's actually, the membership is actually kind of uh, constitutionally limited there by the group, but uh, in terms of impact in the on the campus, it's grown to be quite a big force on the campus, which is uh, pretty amazing to see for us. We joined when it was a lot smaller, a lot or a lot less well known. Um, but that was the type of group where I think by design, because it was small, we forged really, really strong bonds. We did a lot of things together, you know, whether it was work or play in college. And then afterwards as alums, we've done a lot of things together too. And most recently, um, the the spate of uh, violence against Asian Americans um, that that happened uh, was something that uh, you know we all tried to coordinate to do something about uh, in 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 a way that we could do as a group that we could do individually uh, and that's as alums and as undergrads on campus too and so uh, it just shows you the type of bonds that were forged by this organization that we joined twenty years ago and so that's where Wei and I originally met. Yeah. Um, so you bring up a good point. So follow-up question. Can you talk about the points of networking for entrepreneurs or just people in general, how important that is to network with different people? Yeah. So uh, I'll talk about this, especially in the context of my experience here in Seattle. I arrived here three years ago and, uh, Jason, as you know well, because you're you're not natively from the area either, uh, the networks here of people um, are perhaps a little bit more closed off than they are in some other areas of the country, just uh, culturally speaking. Um, and so trying to meet with different people definitely is really, really helpful. But in the way I went about it, and I definitely think uh, a way uh, will have his own experiences, having spent a lot of his career in New York and Boston, um, the way I went about it here in Seattle was to try to get to know that's first because I knew that was a group that I would be accepted in as an army veteran myself. So bunker labs and uh, things like that were definitely kind of uh, an easy entry point for me. And from there, meeting other people from bunker who could introduce me to other networks, whether it's um, other financial planners I met through bunker or it's uh, folks who, uh, let's say, uh, Asian American groups uh, that I met through bunker or Asian Americans that I met through bunker that connected me to Asian American groups or even uh, uh, activity groups like hiking or running or something like that. Uh, Bunker was an easy way to to start networking and meeting with diverse people who all shared that common trait of having been veterans or wanted to help the veteran community. So I I think that's the way I approach and I think it's really important to building any business. Way, any thoughts on that given your experiences in New York and Boston? Yeah, I, I would echo that. And I think generally speaking, I think networking is extremely important in this day and age, uh, it is all somewhat personality driven. I would say that, uh, you know, it's probably easier for extroverts to network versus introverts. And I'm, I'm probably more of introvert. 
you know, cause like, I think for extroverts, when they network is actually, they receive a lot of external energy and they get more confident. They get more, you know, boosted up as a result of more networking. Whereas with introverts, it's actually takes energy away from them when they do networking. So, you know, so basically there's sort of like a time limit where I feel like I can be the most effective in terms of how long I network. Uh, but generally speaking, I think I echo dance points in terms of it's important to talk to the key demographics. But in, in terms of the actual doing the networking itself, I'm in the vein of basically, I'm always in the mode of, of basically, what do I have to give? You know, that, that's sort of the mode that I always, I'm always at when I'm networking. I know there are a lot of people, there's some people, not, I should say a lot, there's some people who are in the mode of, all right, what can I get from this person when I network with them? And uh, I, I feel like that's sort of the, that's the wrong philosophy to take. So I always approach networking as something where, you know, how I can help others as opposed to how other people can help me. So, yeah, I'm an introvert too. And one trick I do is like, like something starts at 7 p.m., I get to 6.45 and get them when they walk in the door, right? Because if I get to 7.20, people are in the little clicks. I'm, I'm just not going to talk to them. I, I'm not going to do it. So I, so I try to get early and try to get, try to get them. Yeah. yeah. And also try like, you know, because some of these meetups and event breaks, they sometimes have the list of people. So I can pick and choose who I want to talk to, right? Kind of, like, you know, stalk them on LinkedIn, whatever you know, and then try to talk to them then. That's what I try to yeah. do. Um, so Dan is in the Seattle area, Way's in the Boston area. Have you always been like, uh, like in two different parts of the country for your business? And if so, how's that worked out? Because you've basically been remote before remote become popular, right? Yeah, we, we've always been remote. So we opened our doors for business in 2016, well, well before the pandemic. Um, I used to be in the Bay Area. You might see over there in the background, there's a small map of the Bay Area that one of our clients gave me as a going away present when I moved here to Seattle. Um, before I was in the Bay Area, and then I moved here. And so those are the two places I've been as long as Triple Summit's been around. Um, being remote hasn't been a problem for us because you know, for most of our lives post-college, we haven't lived in the same city. But we've managed to maintain a really strong friendship and then subsequently start this partnership together. I think the key, and this also you know, kind of ties into a question that people ask, often ask me about, like, how do you choose the right partner to start a business with? The key is to find somebody whose values are in alignment with yours because the the day-to-day -day changes, the, the business um, reality changes, but values should stay pretty true over the course of your relationship with somebody. Um, so find someone whose values align with yours and who you know, you know and trust given the actions that they've uh, that they've shown you before in their past not everyone has that um has you know that sort of uh fortunate situation come up but i did in, in this situation way was looking for a chance to start a business so was i and uh in this case uh, you know one plus one was something greater than two so it ended up working out away uh your thoughts no i agree i, I agree with you completely uh like because we've known each other for so long sort of like we we bypass a lot of the usual uh you know back and forth that's necessary for when sort of like relative strangers come together to start a business so i think you know uh, because i i know what dan's values are and he knows what my values are and we have faith in each other so it's you know it's it meant it opened up a lot of mental capacity and time for us to actually explore and get down and basically analyze the business and how to try figure out how to grow the business as opposed to worrying about the psychological intentions of the other party. And I think that's, you know, absolutely critical for how a good business gets started. So, so you say so you have the same core values. 
However, I'm pretty sure y'all don't agree 100% of the time. How do you, what's your process for working through, you know, quote unquote disagreements? Um, let's see. And I've been going first a lot of time. I'll take this one first, but then I'll, I'll switch it over to Wei for the next question uh, or next set of questions. Um, that is a very, very good question. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that I personally care about the most when there is a disagreement is communication, understanding uh, the positions of both sides or all sides here um, and making sure that every need or every uh, desire is understood on the table. So I, if there, the first thing I do is if there's some disagreement or some sort of conflict is I pick up the phone 100%. I do that with everybody. I mean, face to face would be even better, but we don't have that luxury, unfortunately, uh, living on different coasts and especially here with COVID. Um, so I pick up the phone So because so much gets lost in communication and translation with text, with email, um, you know, but nothing. I think there's no substitute for hearing someone's voice and uh, possibly seeing their face and body language as well. Um, so we do that to try to resolve things. And then we've always treated this as a, you know, 100% partnership between the two of us. We review every investment decision together. Uh, we review every, you know, potential client together, things like that. And there's no separate ownership of anything here in the business, although we, you know, do tend to specialize in different tasks. Um, so we just try to come to some sort of, uh, you know, consensus on things we can do. And generally, generally our rule is if one person says no, then it's a no. Um, that, that's it. That, that's the way we try to operate things. That becomes problematic if there's too many people. Uh, but with just the two of us, I think that's not uh, not too difficult to uh, to achieve. So that's my thoughts on how we deal with uh, conflict resolution. Yeah, I think the key thing, and I agree with that. Where everything that Dan said, but the key thing is compromise. I think you know, two senders disagreement. We both figure out just how important this issue is for us i would sort of come up with an internal ranking in terms of okay like do i really want to push this or do i feel like this is not as important for the overall grand scheme of things and then we can let this go and i, I think that you know once we both sit down and perform that analysis i think it's becomes the resolution any uh potential issues become resolved very quickly so um two-part question first part was the last time you two actually seen each other in person and pre-COVID, how often do y'all travel to see each other in person? Last time we saw each other in person was in 2019. So since the pandemic, so sort of like we haven't traveled uh, in terms of business travel. But we, we we used to, before the pandemic, we, you know, we, we, we travel sort of four to four to six times a year at a minimum to see different clients in, in different geographies. But, uh, but these days that's, uh, you know, it's a little bit harder. I think, uh, I think once uh, we feel like pandemics under better control, that's something that will pick back up. Dan, okay. what do you think? Yeah, I, so I agree. So when I went to visit you in February 2020. So the, the virus was already here at this yeah, point. We just yes. didn't know it. Yeah. Uh, and and actually, you know, we uh, we were going to go to convention that yes. week and we decided yes. not to go because of concerns about yep. the coronavirus. And yep. we didn't realize, you know, how exposed we all already were at that point in time. Yeah. Uh, it's the first time for all of us going through a pandemic. Um, and so... Uh, what we said about traveling is uh, is 100 true. Way has been out here to um, you know 
Seattle, the Bay Area, and LA, all all cities where we have is where we have a lot of clients. And then I go out to Boston, New York quite a bit. My parents still live in New York. Uh, and so there's a lot of reason for me to go there besides just seeing clients. Um, and, you know, we just, we generally tend to go where the clients are. And so just by those cities alone, you know how, how much we travel at least every year. And then, you know, depending on the need, we might go to other places. I've been, I don't think Way's gone with me, but I've been to DC. I even, even went to Alabama. Alabama once uh, to see a client, um, and I, I believe I have uh, you know trips to Chicago, trips to Texas, and trips to Florida in my future at some point in time. So on your your company's LinkedIn, you have a, a intern on there. So I don't know if the intern still works for you or not. But what's what's the process for someone interning for you, and what what do they do? All right, well, this is definitely way. Go ahead. Yeah, he he uh, he he doesn't work for us anymore because he's gone back to school. Okay, because uh, school just started. And yeah, and typically like uh, hiring somebody for us, uh, for, um, you know, hiring intern or something like that. That's that's actually on, sort of like on a, a project by project basis, typically speaking. So like if there is sort of like a key project that requires some some sort of like assistance for somebody in terms of data entry, things of that nature, uh, sort of like, you know, and I, I and I, I, you know, me and Dan, neither one of us had the time to do it. That's one sort of when we, you know, go out and, uh, and look for somebody. And, you know, in terms of this particular intern, yeah, it was a special situation where there was a long-term project that I really wanted to get done, but I just kept on getting swamped up with all these short-term things that kept on creeping up. So we sort of decided to, you know, pull the, pull the trigger and finally hire somebody to help us with that particular project. And the, the end result, you know, is, 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 a, is a blog post that, uh, that we posted uh, on our, on our uh, website uh, that people, you know, people can uh, check out when they get a chance. So, so if someone's out there during college or where the case would be looking for a new career and they want to get into your industry and follow your career paths, what advice do you have for them? Like, what should they be doing? Dan, you want me to go? Or do you, do you want to go? Uh, why don't you go first? Because you've actually spent a lot longer in the industry than I have. And I'll go. Okay. Um, so to get into sort of like what me and Dan and I are doing currently, it's, it's actually not on sort of like college folks, like top, you know, hit lists in terms of doing what Dan and I are doing currently, because in terms of what, you know, the college, college folks, I think, you know, back when I graduated, it was, they're, they're all looking about thinking about doing consulting, investment banking. And then obviously these days it's all about doing technology, uh, you know, working at a registered investment advisor or become a, a financial planner is not very high up uh, on the list, but for those who are interested, what I would say is sort of like, you know, number one, um, you know, start getting acclimated and be comfortable with uh, the environment and the lingo of the industry and the, you know, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and you know, try to keep keep up to date in terms of basically the 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 issues that impact everyday Americans when it comes to you know saving for retirement and things of that nature. And number two, uh, you know, uh, a network, talk to people like me and Dan uh, who who are in the industry, and uh, you know, you know, we're pretty friendly, so we generally talk to everybody who wants to talk to us, um, and sort of like you know, get get a true feel as you know in, in regards to whether or not what we're doing currently is something that they want to do for their career because you know i think uh this, the difference between a career and a job is, is basically is, is the amount of love that you put into it and uh and both dan and i love what we do so that's why we call it a career so 
I mean, Wayne and I hope we can do this uh, for the rest of our lives or the rest of our working lives anyways. Uh, that would be really, really ideal. I'd say that uh, for someone who's looking to get in the industry, there's a few different paths in. Everything that Wayne said is 100% applicable. Um, in Wayne's case, his path in was through the investment management side, so the actual investing side, which a lot of people in this industry have nothing to do with, believe it or not. Um, they're uh, financial planning people or their operations people or their salespeople, uh, client uh, service people. They don't necessarily have to, they never touch the actual investment. So um, that's not a way that you have to take to get into the industry. Um, you can work for as uh, a larger firm, uh, whether it's a brokerage or a larger investment advisor um, or a smaller one. Any way you can find your way in through networking, um, through college uh, recruitment uh, pipelines, things like that, or grad school recruitment pipelines exist as well. You can find your way into the industry. It's a really rewarding industry, um, in my opinion, because it provides so much flexibility and you have such a huge impact on people's lives. Uh, it's whether or not people know it, um, everybody needs financial planning in one way, shape or form. Um, it's not necessarily it's not necessary to get financial planning from a professional, just like the way most of us don't necessarily need to see a physician all the time. Um, but uh, for a lot of people uh, who recognize this about themselves, they know that they need help from um, uh, you know whether to check up annually or like a physician provides or something a bit more. Um, uh, a bit more high touch, like a physical trainer would provide, a personal trainer would provide, where they provide ongoing advice and ongoing motivation. Oh, wait, uh, can you go more a deep, do a deeper dive in your background? Oh, okay. Uh, so I came to this country from China when I was nine. Uh, grew up in New York, uh, grew up in Flushing, New York, after I came to this country. Uh, and then, uh, you know, went to Harvard. Uh, majored in uh, applied math and econ. Like Dan said, I also have, I also have a master's degree in statistics. Uh, after that, I sort of, uh, after graduating from college, I worked for a year and a half at Merrill Lynch. Uh, I call it Merrill Lynch because, you know, it was an independent entity back then before it was acquired by Bank of America. And then, so after a year and a half doing investment banking at Merrill Lynch, uh, for the next sort of like 10 years or so, I worked at various, uh, distressed debt and event driven equity hedge funds. Um, yeah. And then, so, so yeah, that was from 2005 to 2015. And then it was, you know, it was end of 2015 where I was looking for a career transition transition. So that's when I sort of like, you know, talked with Dan and, uh, started triple summit and I've been working at triple summit, uh, since 2016. So that's my career background. So wait, so you got your bachelor's and master's in only four years from Harvard. Uh, yes. So I was fortunate enough to accrue a fair amount of uh, advanced placement credits when I was in high school. So I, I had a choice of graduating in three years uh, from college if I wanted to. But since I was having such a great time uh, in college, I decided to stay the full four years, but I didn't want to necessarily waste sort of like my, you know, my time there. So I sort of, uh, Oh, took a lot of courses and uh, I got a master's degree at the same time. So, so first of all, what kind of high school do you go to that had advanced placement credits for Harvard? Like, like oh my goodness, like what in the world? Like, whoo! Well, I think AP, AP advanced placement courses are offered in high schools all across the country, right? Well, so I've never had an advanced uh, placement for Harvard, though. That's that's a different level, know. I think. 
No, well, I think sort of like yeah, most colleges and Harvard included sort of like takes into account the amount of advanced placement courses you take in high school. And if you have enough credits, you can sort of like, you know, skip a year of college. And, you know, just, I, you know, I, I was lucky enough to accrue enough credits where, you know, I could skip a year and graduate in three years if I wanted to. But, you know, I just chose to stay extra year and get, get another degree. So, yeah, I'm guessing luck was like 10% and your hard work and dedication, like probably 90%. So way follow up a question for you. Like, and Jason, uh, before you, he yeah. didn't actually answer your question, is which high school did he go to? He went to Stuyvesant in New York. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we went to Stuyvesant High School in New York. Public yes. high school in New York City. Yes. So can you talk some about the drive and focus and dedication you had to like, like do that in only four years? Because a lot of people get a bachelor's in like eight years nowadays, right? <laughs> um, I, really, I didn't think it was sort of like, I think it's environment-based. Uh, obviously, I was placed into an environment where everybody was, you know, on the top of their game. Everybody's super focused at all times, right? So, uh, the like, it would have been actually uh, weird or strange or out of the ordinary uh, if you were super chill. And so, decide to graduate in eight years. Uh, <laughs> so, basically, I think the broader environment, everybody talked to, there was a sense of angst. And sense of basically, oh, I have to get this done, uh, you know, percolating around sort of all my friends and, uh, you know, everybody I talk to. So, so basically in that environment, sort of like, you know, uh, I didn't feel compelled to chill. So I sort of went with the flow and, uh, and basically, you know, I think because that's what everybody did. So, and I'd like to add one thing to that too. That's, that's so true. And I think a lot of people miss out on this being the true value of attending a place like Harvard or, or even Stye as well. Uh, it's a very high achieving school, the, the best of the best in New York City over you know, there um, on the public side. Um, but going to a place like Harvard, uh, the, the value 100% um, is not in the books that you read or even the professors that you have. I mean, they're certainly valuable, but it's not uh, It's not the true value. But the true value is in the friendships you make, the friendships and the connections you make, uh, the network you build you don't even think of it of networking at the time but it is it becomes your network it becomes your lifetime lifelong network um and it gives you access to opportunities to um choices and options in life that you otherwise won't have it really does a great job of uh propelling you know public school kids like me and way into uh access to things that we otherwise wouldn't have so i might be making this up i remember hearing a story somewhere where I can't remember where was this guy was telling a story about he was in college. He was going like like a pretty like he's going like Duke University. He was, like, he was struggling, right? He's making DCs, barely hanging on. And his roommate was kind of like roommate making like all A's, like just doing really good. And so the son called the dad and said, Hey dad, you know, like, you know, I don't waste your money. I'm not making here at Duke University. Let me transfer back to the public school, back to the state of you know, state or wherever, public school. And then dad, like, well, what you don't realize is like this guy who's killing it, he's gonna rub off on you, right? And so you're gonna I don't really care about your grades. I care more about you being the right type of people who's going to improve your network and do that kind of stuff, right? So I think a lot of people, a lot of kids don't get that, right? Like, it's more like, like Dan said, it's the network that people you go around, right? Because, like, this guy, he was, like, making Ds and Cs, barely making it. But, you know, it's saying college Cs gets the degrees, right? And as a roommate, this high yeah. achiever, you know, what, what's better than that? Yeah, 100%. Uh, uh, students at age 18, age 19, they just don't know. Most of them don't know. I certainly didn't. That uh, the bonds that you're making then are going to be the things that uh, 
pay off for you in the future. Not your notebook as a transactional at all. It's just, it, it becomes your life. I mean, I met my wife at Harvard, right? Talk about a payoff for the future. So that's the same thing I'm going to teach my children. Now that I've had that experience of Wei and I are both the children of immigrants. You heard about him moving here at age nine. Um, my parents are from Thailand and they, uh, I was born in the U S but uh, they, they moved here in the seventies. Um, you know, they didn't, have, my parents and waste parents didn't have that perspective to offer, to offer to us. So we had to learn it on our own. We had to discover that on our own. Um, but for our children, we'll absolutely impart that lesson upon them. Um, you know, there's a reason why uh, Wei and I really uh, emphasize uh, great schools in where we're choosing to live. I live here in Mercer Island, Washington, and Wei lives in Newton, Massachusetts, both places known for great public schools. And we're going to try to impart these lessons on our kids in addition to their, you know, hopefully rigorous academic training as well. Hey, Dad, you, you never went to Building 1411, did you, for Bunker Labs? I don't think you I, did. I, I've been there, but I, I, uh, I didn't spend much time there. Um, you probably didn't meet him, but downstairs there's a Thai restaurant, the, the, the lady and the husband. Um, mm -hmm. they, they actually cooked for the, the Thailand king for like 10 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, what's the name of the restaurant? Uh, it's downstairs, fourteen eleven. It's the only restaurant there. Hopefully, okay. it's, it's still there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So they did that. I'll check them out sometime. Yeah, they cooked for like the, them for like ten years. Then they then they, they then they left and they cooked on a on a cruise for about ten years. Then they came here and had the rest like maybe ten okay. years. Yeah. So okay. I mean, that's a that's a big deal in Thailand. If there's if there's a universal like love and uh, reverence and acclaim for somebody in you know Thai history, it's uh it's uh, the recently deceased uh, King Rama the Ninth. Um, he he was universally universally revered. I mean, even to this day, he still is. So uh, that that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, I remember me and my family we were in Korea for three years, and my wife has family in Thailand. So we went to 07 or 08, like two weeks each time. And first thing, the brother said, hey, don't never say nothing negative about the king. You know, just yeah. don't mention it because his pictures everywhere you go. So, yeah, that's yeah. very ingrained in you when you go visit yeah. there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Dan, now for you, can you give us a more a detailed uh, deep dive on your background? Uh, yeah. So, um, I grew up... Uh, uh, in Scarsdale, New York, which is a suburb north of New York City, uh, the type of place where people move in again for the schools. Um, the schools are very good. Uh, great community grew up in, uh, to grow up in. And I felt really grateful for a place that's uh, where the community was safe and the parents and the teachers and the administrators uh, all invested in the opportunities the kids would have. Um, a, a large portion of my, it, is, it was a public school, but the type of public school where you, you typically you had to have some money to move into town, that sort of thing. Um, the type of public school where a lot of the students um, at the top of the public school end up going to you know fantastic you know, top 25 schools uh, for college. And I was lucky enough to land at Harvard. Um, I felt really grateful for my time, uh, again, growing up in a system that gave me so much opportunity. I wanted to do something to give back. And so I actually volunteered for RTC a few days before 9-11. 9-11 hadn't happened before. I, I showed up to RTC as something I knew I wanted to do. At the time, Harvard didn't have an ROTC program. Uh, it got kicked off campus uh, in the 80s, I believe. And uh, it's, it's got, uh, it got sent back to campus, or it's now back on campus, which is great. But uh, the policies at the time were not in accordance with what the Harvard faculty believed. Um, and so 
I had to go to RTC down the street at MIT uh, and did that. That was a great experience. Um, ended up commissioning as an artillery officer uh, in the Army and spent two years in Korea and a year in Iraq and also a year in training. Um, uh, back in the day, artillery school took six months and then it took me a bit of time to get through Ranger School and Airborne School as well. Um, so that was my four years in the Army. I was in Iraq on a military transition team advising the Iraqis. This is something we hear a lot about in Afghanistan recently uh, that we also had the mission for in Iraq back in 2008, 2009 when I was there. Um, and then when I got out, uh, I was lucky enough to uh, land at uh, UC Berkeley Haas for business school. Um, my wife got a job out in San Francisco as an attorney. Uh, so that's what brought us out west originally around 2010. Um, and I worked uh, out of Haas in investing in credit investing for Prudential. Uh, great team out in San Francisco, great people, super intelligent, super motivated. Uh, but I found the work to be not for me, uh, oftentimes just the, the, the day in, day out nature of the work. And so I ended up leaving, going to a, a, a startup where uh, I could have a bit more what I felt like was impact. Um, and uh, the reason, part of the reason for this was even though I, you know, loved finance and investing, which is what I was doing at Prudential, um, I didn't feel like I was having the impact I was having in the military. The military kind of spoils you a little bit. Uh, once you hit the leadership ranks, whether it's on the NCO side or the officer side, you have a lot of impact and a lot of um, influence on people's lives and events. Uh, it's just incredible how much responsibility is given you as a young age, whether you're a young sergeant or a young lieutenant. Um, and so I, I miss having that impact. Uh, so I went to a startup where definitely my decisions mattered. My decisions uh, end up, um, you know, helping the companies succeed or fail. Um, and that startup eventually became what's now known as Zipline, which does drone delivery of medical products. It wasn't at the time when I joined them, but it was a robotics company. Um, and so I was there for two years before we start triple some advisors together for a combination of being able to do financial planning and investing our own way, uh, flexibility for our families. Both Wayne and I had young children at the time. We've both added one other young child to our family since then. Um, and uh, luckily, uh, our wives supported us as well and uh, uh, worked corporate jobs to help bring in healthcare while these two entrepreneurs got started. So that brings me up uh, almost to the present. We moved to Seattle three years ago. For, uh, to be closer to family. My wife's sister lives up here. So uh, that now brings us up to the present. So Dan, talk talk more about how the, being an army officer set, set you up for success to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, great, great question. So in the military, this is a common misconception that people have um, that in the military, you are told what to do and you don't have to think. You have to be just an automaton that listens to orders and don't have to think for yourself. And nothing could be further from the truth. The way the U.S. military especially is set up is that the commander or someone above you gives oftentimes what their intent is for a job that needs to be done or a set of tasks that need to be completed or a mission that needs to be achieved. And they don't necessarily tell you how to do it. A, they don't want to tell you how to do it. Uh, and B, they don't have the time or resource. They got to move on to the next thing. So you have to figure it out on your own. So it's a constant, constant set of uh, problem solving challenges that you need to figure out. Uh, again, whether you're a you know new uh, enlistee at the lowest ranks or you're at a higher level, it's just constant constant problem solving, constant challenges, and always something new too. That's the, the wonderful thing. I mean, talk about, um, 
you know, you constantly be rotated to new units, even though you might stay in the same uh, specialty. Uh, you have different jobs, whether it's an operations officer, or a logistics officer, or um, you're doing even something as as uh, simple as staff duty, where you're the person who's responsible for you know overseeing certain things about your unit and making sure that the commander is notified if something happens, all that stuff. You have that duty for 24 hours. You still got to figure out how to do it, right? You still got to figure out what are the priorities and things like that. Uh, what things come up, you got to um, figure out what they set up the chain, which things you don't. Um, if that's not entrepreneurship, I don't know what is. Um, constant challenges, cha- challenges constantly changing, constant problem solving. Uh, not you're going into the office, you punch the same buttons every day, and then you leave like that. That is not the military, and that's certainly not entrepreneurship. So, so two stories real fast. First story, I was uh, when I retired from the army, uh, I was doing for interview for this job, and so I'm doing a phone interview with the recruiter. And the critic says, hey, I know you applied for one job, but we actually want you to apply for another job below it. I said, well, can I ask why? Well, the job you applied for has five direct reports and this one doesn't. Well, I, you know, I retired as a major. I told all the stuff I did, blah, 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 direct reports. Oh, we understand they appreciate it. But at our company, we let our people have feedback toward the bosses, right? And we know the army is just a do what I say, do thing, right? <laughs> I just like, almost fell out, yeah. right? So like, okay, yeah. Yeah. this ain't the yeah. company for me, right? Yeah, not the, not the right company, yeah. yeah. No, and the next story is like, when you're talking about like the commander's intent, like one time I, I was getting a lot of stuff to do. So I started delegating my people. And one person said like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, I need more direction. I like, if I need more direction, you use this to me. We need to find another job. So either you figure yeah. this shit out or yeah. you send you someplace else, right? Cause I, right. I don't have time to, you know, you're this rank, you should be able to do this. That's I can right. give you some training guys, but like, you, you gotta help me here, right? And that's, people don't realize that. A lot of students, it's like this, like, here's this stuff, figure it out. You know, this, don't do this, don't do that. You know, and people don't get that about the military. I mean, I look at uh, look at it this way: the, the Afghan evacuation that happened over the course of about two weeks, right? Something like that, two three weeks. Um, that obviously there were faults with it. There's no doubt about it. I think everyone would agree on that. But they managed to move a hundred thousand, somewhat was hundred thousand plus people during that time with security vetting, with you know all the security challenges that were going on, things like that. And they deployed a total of a thousand extra troops to do that. Tell me what organization in America can deploy a thousand people and do all that security vetting, all that you know, maintaining security, maintaining discipline under the super harsh conditions, under a threat of attack, which eventually happened. Um, and that you can do it by giving no feedback at all, giving, giving, you know, just an automaton that's just able to do it and, and not think for themselves. There's no way. There's no way. People aren't paying attention if they, if they think that you join the military and you can't, you just stop thinking. Yeah. Exactly. So next question, yeah. first away, but for both of y'all, Talk about the points of having your spouse or significant other being supportive of you of you as an entrepreneur. That is the most important thing when you're starting uh, anything in life, pretty much. Right? Uh, I think uh, there's a common saying that Dan and I go by is, you know, happy wife, happy life. And yes, Dan, Dan, says like, that, Dan says that many times. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, we're both, you know, strict believers in that. Uh, because, uh, like a human being only has so much mental capacity. Right. So, uh, you know, if you're, if Dan and I were to, are going to be a hundred percent focused on our business, sort of like we need to have as little distraction as possible elsewhere. And if we have, uh, uh, sort of like our significant other is sort of not on board with what we're doing, that means that we're fighting a war on both fronts. 
right? So to speak. And that's, that's, that's a guaranteed way to lose, so to speak, right? So, so everything that we do, sort of like, you know, we keep our significant others, you know, very much involved and, and make sure they're happy is because when they're happy, so Dan and I are allowed to do and can do what we are happy doing. And it's sort of like, it's a virtuous cycle in that regard. So yes, I would say having a happy significant other is the most important thing when you're doing anything in life. Um, so in my experience, uh, and I, especially during the early days, I, I'm seeing way smiling here. Like I, like I think back to all of the different, uh, things that I'm sure he's referring to in his head as well. The kind of individual instances of, you know, 100% what he said, uh, in my experience, um, I think that, uh, that if you don't have alignment with partners, business partners, then that's setting yourself up for failure. If you don't have alignment with your life partner, then that's also setting yourself up for failure. So both Wei and I definitely made it a huge point to make sure that uh, our wives understood uh, what we were trying to achieve, the the conditions under which we were trying to achieve it, the financial impact on our families, things like that. That um, you know, this is not something that would have happened without their support, and so we we're very grateful for that. And we, um, you know, would urge all people who are looking to start businesses or even change jobs and just start something new uh, to really think about the impact it's going to have on their families and on their uh, significant other before doing that. And oftentimes they're going to be supportive of you because that's, they, they, they chose to be with you. You just need to find a way to make sure that everybody's needs and interests are, are, are met in an acceptable way for the people involved. So next, a two part question and a kind of, kind of a little personal. So I'm assuming both you do pretty okay. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're doing well. Um, both to Harvard. And so your kids are going to have center advantages, I think, right? So two-part yeah. question. Part one is like, how are you going to make sure your kids are going to have the same driver focus you did and take advantage of opportunities you're going to be able to give them? And part two, for someone who's out there who's like, you know, like coming from a single parent, low-income household, what advice do you have for them to like have focus and drive and, and succeed like, you know, like y'all did coming up? That's a great question. I'll, I'll, I'll tackle this first. So uh, first is... How can we try to make sure that our kids, you know, have the same drive, that sort of thing? Um, I don't pretend to have any sort of, you know, uh, secret sauce to this because I haven't lived it yet. And even if I did, I can take 100% of the credit, even if I were successful, I'm sure. Um, my kids are uh, almost six and almost two. And so I, you know, I'm not speaking from experience here. What we're going to try to do and hopefully do is show them that hard work and working smarter as well uh, is what matters as opposed to the status that they have or the, the, the situation that they're in uh, being what matters. Uh, we're we're going to try that a lot. I think that there's some advantages here. All four of the, uh, you know, the, the two of us and then our spouses, all four of us are definitely hardworking people by our standards, uh, by what we believe. And so I think they hopefully have some good role models to look up to there. Um, I think culturally also the, the, the places where we live, you know, Wei and I don't happen to stand out. There are people who are more well-to-do, have, you know, more visibly, uh, 
wealth that's more visible, have longer standing in the community. I mean, you especially talk about Boston, their families have traced their roots back hundreds of years um, uh, in, in Boston, even much longer than, you know, the Seattle has been uh, part of America. Um, so we, hopefully our kids won't feel that way towards, you know, their peers, like there's there something special. Hopefully they'll, they'll feel instead that, Hey, I still have to compete uh, and work hard in order to win in order to achieve and then get to where I want to go. And then for folks who don't have the advantages, um, I think there's two things I'd like to say. One is that uh, there are folks out there um, who believe in progressive values who are trying to level the playing field. Uh, I'd like to think that, you know, we're on that side of things uh, and that we're, we're hoping to push those, those sorts of policies forward for our generation and future generations. So, uh, you know, don't give up all hope that, uh, that, uh, folks who might have had, have been luckier in life when they were born, uh, or, you know, just the course of serendipity in life, uh, are, are, are not, uh, willing to fight for folks who did not have the same luck and the same advantages. That's one. And then two, I think is um, don't be afraid to talk to other people who are not from, you know, where you are in life, um, reaching out to people who, where you want to be um, networking uh, is kind of one example. Of this um, is, I think it will elicit a better response than most people think. A lot of people might think, oh, well, I, I come from a lower income home or I don't have any connections. What do I have to offer someone I reach out to? Oftentimes, the people you reach out to want to help and can provide advice and connections and then use their influence to help you. But two, also, you do have things to provide, whether it comes in the form of experiences that you can share or working, right? So... If somebody who's really motivated, and I've seen this happen many, many times, who's really, really motivated wants to achieve something and they're willing to show they're willing to go above and beyond what somebody else who might feel entitled to that position or privileged to take that position is willing to do, oftentimes that person stands out and they're given a shot. Uh, when you're given that shot or when you work hard to get yourself to take that shot, take it, right? And you never know what things might happen. Um, this is very random, but I just read this this morning. Uh, the editor-in-chief of uh, Business Insider, um, it, who is, uh, her name's Allison Chantel, just got named the editor-in-chief of Fortune Magazine, which is a you know long and storied magazine with uh, connections to the biggest business leaders in the world. Um, and she, I, I just happened to be reading her bio. She went to Syracuse for undergrad and a you know, very great journalism school there. But I would imagine if you look at the bios of the people who typically held this position, they probably had some you know, fancy sounding colleges on their, uh, for, on their resume. And you could tell that she, she's also the first woman who's the editor in chief of Fortune. You could tell she, she, she definitely put in her hours and put in her, her time and blood, sweat and tears to reach where she is. And, you know, kudos to her. I also think she's a fantastic journalist as well. Um, okay. I'll shut up. Uh, wait, please. <laughs> Stop me from talking. No, I, I agree with everything that you said. I, I think it is hard uh, for parents to impart their specific values to their kids because uh, circumstances of, you know, of their lives are very different than circumstances of, you know, of our lives. 
right? So I'm just, I'm just imagining sort of like what my parents went through and the values that they tried to, you know, instill in me, you know, at the time, I probably didn't understand it because, you know, my life experience is very, is very different than theirs. And I'm sure, you know, going forward to my son and to my daughter, their life experiences will be very different as well. So the only thing that I can do is sort of communicate as much as possible, just basically, you know, talk to them, explain to them what, where I'm coming from, explain to them sort of what are the driving forces and living cir- circumstances that sort of like push me to do what I'm doing and, uh, and basically lay out my reasoning and, and offer them a choice in terms of, okay, so this is what I did. This, these are the reasons why I did it. Um, you can choose to do, you know, the same thing or you can choose to do something else, but at least, you know, I'm giving them a choice and I'm not trying to basically force my will upon them by sort of like saying, oh, this is what I did. So therefore you have to do the same thing. I, I don't think that would, would is the right framework in terms of communicating with the kids. So I think for, for me, you know, imparting my values is number one thing is communication and making sure that they understand where I'm coming from and not to approach the things that I'm trying to teach them in a sort of like my way or, or the highway type of uh, criteria uh, in terms of sort of like advice for those who are not as fortunate as, as me and Dan, I think it's important to uh, realize that sort of, unfortunately uh, there is a sentiment of unfairness that percolates uh, in this country and globally. Um, and what's important is, 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 okay, it is important for us to realize that of the unfairness, that's number one. But upon realization, uh, I don't think people should be stuck in that mentality that because uh, I've been dealt a bad hand in life, therefore I don't have any chance of, you know, of basically striking out on my own and running up the, the social ladder, so to speak. Um, I think um, pe- people should use sort of like where they are in life as sort of fuel as, and as motivation to basically drive to where they want to be. Um, and, and I think sort of like, that's sort of like been how sort of like say immigrants, you know, accounting for me and my parents and uh, other people as I know how, how they sort of been able to achieve what they've been able to achieve in this country. And it's, it's, a, it's a matter of, of, of basically of, uh, of realizing that sort of like, uh, just complaining about things is, you know, it's fine, but it doesn't get anything done. So, so basically keep, keep the complaints inside. We use that as motivation to, to drive to a better future is the way I look at it. So, so this, this just popped in my head. And I just remember this. So I, I took a history class at college way back in the day. It was like pre-American history before 1776 there's a settlement, you know, in Virginia somewhere and the talk around the town elders was like everyone had came from England, crossed the Atlantic Ocean, built up a settlement, you know, all that kind of hardship. And they were worried that their their kids would be soft because they didn't have to cross the Atlantic Ocean. They didn't have to build a settlement. Like, and, this, and the discussion was how do we keep our kids from being soft and, you know, and being like, not being hard like it was. So even back, way back then, that same conversation going like, how do you, like, you know, your kids is suffering like you did, quote unquote, you know, goes to hardship. But then again, that, or like, but then you do kind of in a kind of way you do, you know. So how do you yeah. how do you balance that? 
Yeah, it's it, for sure. It's a sentiment as old as time. And you know, I, I just look to American history and what Warren Buffett says about it is that America's best days lie ahead. I have tons of hope uh, and tons of expectation, frankly, for uh, future generations and being better than us uh, and finding their own ways of working hard to, um, you know, move things forward, uh, whether it's on things uh, as, as global as climate change or uh, more local, like you know, fair housing policy, that sort of thing. And so I, I have hope and faith that uh, future generations will be better. But as far as the micro level about our specific kids, we, we're just trying to do the best we can. Yeah. So another random story. And again, I don't know if it's true, but you know how you hear stuff. Supposedly, uh, Bill Gates is someone to do in a fancy restaurant. And um, so dinner's over and they each pay their own bill. And Bill Gates' son gave like, uh, like a 500% tip, like the crazy money, right? And Bill Gates gave the typical 20% tip. And so the guy was confused. And Bill Gates was like, what's wrong, son? Well, I, never, I can't ask you that. No, ask me. While, while Mr. Gates, like, you're the richer man in the world, one of the richer men, you gave me like standard tip, your son gave me all this money. I, I'm like, oh, that's simple to explain. Um, my son is a son of the richest man on earth, or one of the richest men on earth. I'm the son of a woodcutter, right? So like, he always thinks after the woodcutter where sounds like thinks he's rich all the time, right? So, so, you- so this story has to be apocryphal because Bill Gates is not the son of a woodcutter. Yeah, that's what, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Yeah, his, 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 his father's actually a, quite the high powered attorney uh, here okay. in the Seattle area. They have, they have some standing, yeah, or his father was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always thought that, that, was, that, was, that was funny, yeah, but 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 I think the moral stance, I think the moral stance, yeah. So next, let's talk about your company's core values. Like talk about the process of designing your core values, like how you two like went back and forth like on the core values and all that process. And how do you make sure like you keep living your core values for the company every day? So I, I'm going to turn this one to Wei because I think Wei probably has a, uh, we definitely had some back and forth in it, but I, my memory is notoriously bad and fuzzy. So thinking back to five plus years ago, yeah, he's laughing. Uh, five plus years ago is tough. I bet you Wei has a clearer recollection of, you know, how we hashed this out. Um, so we, we, we forged the preliminary details of a firm over dim sum at a basement restaurant in Boston, right? And, and basically in it, we sort of like really talked about sort of like what we want to do um, and how we want to serve, you know, our clients. So, you know, we, we realized we wanted to go the, uh, the registered investment advisory route because we wanted to be fiduciaries. Right. Um, we didn't. We didn't want to be beholden to any broker dealers. We didn't want to be, be beholden to any insurance companies in terms of sort of like selling products. So we we want to you know offer the products that make you know the most sense to each individual client. Essentially, we want to treat our clients the same way, sort of like we treat our own money. So th- that's why we decided to go sort of like the registered investment advisory. You know route right and, and in terms of sort of like the the other values sort of like that 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 we advocate basically you know we we realize that basically that doing financial planning and doing investment management is is sort of like a long-term process and basically we're not going to take any victory laps if we sort of like beat the market over the course of a day or a week or a month or even a year so so basically like that's how we are ourselves with our own money. So we, so basically if we're going to treat our clients the same way, we tell them, Hey, we take a very long-term view. 
Okay. And, and number two, sort of like, you know, we, we never, we, Dan and I, we're not the type of person who likes to basically hold secrets. We're not that person who says, Oh, we have a proprietary algorithm, those things. So, but you know, but it's super advanced and super complicated. So you got to invest with us to get, you know, to get in on it because it's only for an exclusive group. That's not how we operate. So anything that we do, like we're very transparent about it. Uh, so basically anything that we buy, anything, anything that we sell, all the clients see it in their respective accounts and they can talk to me and Dan at all times about why, why we did, did certain things. And I get plenty of phone calls asking from our clients recently, uh, you know, and be like, Hey, why do we buy this? Why do we buy that? And we, we talk to them about it. And uh, sort of like, that's why we value educating our clients and value transparency. Okay. And, you know, we, we realize, you know, that basically not every single person is a good client for us. So basically we're, we're somewhat selective in terms of, uh, of who we pick. So we talk to them, we do a lot of due diligence, we make sure that their values, goals, and expectations align with our values, goals, and expectations so that there wouldn't be any miscommunication going forward so that it, it would be a mutually beneficial and growing relationship as opposed to a basically a destructive relationship where it's purely transactional. Those are the type, type of relationships that we don't want. So basically, that's why we say we're very selective by our clients. And I think last point I hit, and this is, I think, the biggest one, is that you know we, we want to stress that we eat our own cooking and basically like a significant portion of my net worth and dance net worth is invested in the same products as our clients. I would say about 10% of a firm's AUM is our, is our, is our money is my money and dance money. Right. So, and I, you know, and basically, you know, that's, that's, I think is one of the key differentiators because you talk to a lot of, a lot of financial advisors and they do a very good pitch about sort of like the awesomeness of different products. But when you ask them about sort of like how much of their own net worth is invested in the strategies of their own firm, um, a lot of times you come back with crickets, with nothing, with, with basically, oh, well, and, uh, and they come up with excuses, right? And that's not the case with me and Dan. Basically, we eat our own cooking, we pay for our own cooking, and basically we are 100% aligned with our clients. And so that's the last point I want to hit. And when Wei does a really good job with service, I leave him a 500% tip too. <laughs> yes. So next follow question, who is your ideal client? So I can, I can take that one. Um, so for us, we are looking for someone who really um, is willing to get uh, roll up their sleeves a little bit and kind of get their get their hands dirty and willing to work on their own financial plan. Not to say that we're going to say, oh, you need to do all the work yourself. We want them to work with us, right? We want somebody who's willing to uh, put in that work and understand that it's for their long-term well-being. And so in that way, we do view ourselves a little bit like personal trainers, um, folks who are going to give it to you straight uh, help you set a plan for the improvement that you want to see in your life and try to bring, bring best practices for how to get there. Um, and so we don't say, oh, well, we want, uh, we only market to or only want clients from the tech world or we only want clients uh, who are uh, physicians or attorneys or anything like that. We never say anything like that. Um, but we do tend to resonate what we found in the past, resonate 
most with folks who are kind of in our stage of life. So say mid thirties to mid forties, uh, sort of folks with, uh, kids who are still going through school, elementary school, um, uh, middle school, uh, that sort of age typically. Um, and then, uh, folks who are still building their careers are not quite yet at the peak of their careers, um, but still building their careers and folks who realize, Hey, I make a lot of money now. I've kind of made it to where I want to be financially, which is great, but I don't necessarily know what to do with that money, that excess money that I have. I'm now finally generating excess relative to my expenses. So what do I do with it? I need to plan. That's, that's typically where we come in. Yeah, that's exactly it. I don't have anything else to add. So, next question, and again, something personal. Which one of you is a Lord of Rings fan? <laughs> I think that's both of us, right, Dan? Yeah, I'm. I'm certainly a fan. I, 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 uh, I, I certainly enjoy it. Um, I, I read. I read the. I've seen all three movies, of course, or the original movies. Um, or the Peter Jackson movies, I should say. Uh, and I read all three books sometime in college. Um, so I, I, I like fantasy generally, uh, sci-fi. I like even more. And the reason I asked this, or listeners know, on the website somewhere, it says, um, we're not middle earth. It's not one wing to rule them all. Like, you know, so it goes into a little of the philosophy a little bit, right? So I thought it was pretty good. Oh yeah, that, that was way. That was definitely way. So, so you'll notice if you go through the website and you kind of read different things we write or different things that we even say, anything that um, that requires a bit more uh, complex literary thinking, way one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Have you have you have you read way the um, uh, going to the west? Uh, uh, go, it's going to the west, right? Yeah, you've read it, right? The Chinese epic sagas like that, that's uh, think, think that term, those sorts of um, grand uh, pieces of art. When you think uh, you see any writing there that has literary references. Nice. So next we're going to, let's talk about something. Let's talk about COVID. It's a lot, a lot to, to, to unwrap right now. COVID, of course, is bad. People would die. That's bad at all. But some businesses have been a great opportunity for them, right? And then, like, you yes. know, another thing, too, we're talking about, you know, like, like we're talking, I guess we're talking about the restaurant industry first has got hit a hit a lot, right? So, and you can agree or disagree, but I think one thing COVID did is like, so entrepreneurship is hard. I think it forced a lot of businesses to go out of business that would have went out of business anyway, right? And so yeah. maybe they were in business in five years, but now COVID and got out of business in one year. Yeah. And a lot of businesses were like, you know, innovative, diff different things, like a lot of restaurants, like curbside driving, delivery, like different things that did, right? So I yeah. just think COVID forced the great entrepreneurs to tip the game and be even greater. And the back had me, instead of being out of business five years, they were, they were in a business now, right? And then talk yeah. about how it affected your business, what you've seen through COVID, positive and negative. Yeah, so I agree with you uh, with, with that viewpoint, Jason. I, I agree with you that, uh, I mean, sadly, the, the statistics show a lot of businesses that get started um, shouldn't have been started to begin with. And COVID is certainly something that would accelerate um, their demise. Uh, for us, uh, COVID has um, you know, hampered us in some ways and helped us in other ways. Uh, one thing in one way that it's helped us and we, you know, we uh, certainly could not foresee this is that people still want to do business with us um, completely over the phone, through referrals, over on Zoom, uh, through email uh, in ways that, um, you know, in the past may have required a bit more 
uh, actual in-person or interpersonal sort of touches in order to, 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 to win the business in order to uh, land a new client. Um, and now because this is just the reality we live in, people are willing to do it on much less than that. Um, we even had someone reach out to us, uh, two people actually reach out to us and one of them became a client because they saw a Reddit post about us. I, I remember uh, that. On, yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I talked to you about this. Yeah. Uh, Reddit post about us and neither of us are active on Reddit. We did not write anything on Reddit. Um, someone else, the post went something along the lines of, uh, I met Dan at a Seattle angel investing event. I would recommend him for financial plan. I have no idea who wrote this zero idea. And yet it managed to uh, lead to a client, uh, a prospective client reaching out to us who then became a client, um, as a result of this post. So, you know, whoever, whoever wrote that on Reddit, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. I'm glad you had a good interaction with us. Uh, and then, uh, on the damper side is we would like to see people more personally, and no matter what, there's still no substitute for that. We miss our clients in the Bay area. We miss our clients in New York. Um, we miss our clients everywhere and we would love to see them again and, uh, and, and give hugs and things like that. Actually, uh, speaking of, uh, people and updates from people that we can't see way, uh, Ton just had his baby boy. Okay. Um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's that's great news. A, a friend of ours and a friend of the, of the business just just had his first kid, so that's really great. And we will, we would love to be able to see him, but we can't because he's in Vancouver. Nice. So, can you talk some about your about your business model? Like, how do y'all how do y'all make money? Yeah, I'll, I'll give this away. Okay. Uh, so we make money one or two ways. So if somebody comes to us and they just want a financial plan, and says, "Hey." Uh, here are all my data in terms of my income, expenses, what I have currently invested, uh, when do I want to retire, uh, what, I, what do I think sort of my expenses are going to be in retirement. You know, we pull all that together and sort of like we, we can formulate a pretty detailed financial plan where we give them sort of like a uh, odds, a percentage chance that, that basically that by the time they get to sort of like a certain age that they will have le money left over you know, uh, for retirement and things of that nature. So drafting that, that's sort of like, you know, uh, a lot of, our, some of our clients do that, but, but, you know, I, I would say sort of like, you know, not the majority of our clients sort of like ask us to do the second part, which is just investment management, where basically we manage certain portion or all of their assets for them invested in sort of across sort of like the four different strategies that we have. And we charge a, you know, asset under management fee uh, that's paid out, you know, once a quarter. And the fees can range anywhere between 0.65% uh, to 1.5%, depending on the type of strategy that the client picks. Yes. So, Paul, you have a client. Does like, Way take care of the client, Dan take care of the client, or are you both tag team and both you take care of the client? Um, I mentioned this previously. We There's no separate ownership of any particular part of the business by us, it's a partnership. Uh, and we, we want it this way. We both uh, interface with our clients and we have something around uh, somewhere between 140 and 150 at this point. Yep. Um, and, you know, they, they, they speak to both of us um, or, you know, whichever one of us they would like to. Is there a maximum number of clients that you could, you can handle? So the standard kind of conventional uh, wisdom in the industry and in the financial planning, wealth management industry is that each advisor can handle about a hundred. Um, and beyond that, you start to um, 
lose details and lose effectiveness. And I think that's probably true. I think if we were to onboard another 50 clients over the next several years, that, that we probably hit capacity in terms of being able to take on new clients unless we do one of two things, uh, either hire so that we can take on new clients um, or uh, unfortunately, let smaller clients go. Um, and I don't know if you know the, the second one is a particularly palatable to us, especially since you know we really like like way I was saying before, we really value each relationship that is we have. And we're very selective about people we choose. So unless it's worked out against the way that we thought it would, why would we let somebody go? So during our pre-talk, you said that you haven't like recorded or fired a client yet, but what would be your process be for letting a client go? What would a client have to do like to, for you to go to, go to them and say, like, this isn't working out? Um, I'll go first with this. I think they would have to be wildly off from the expectations that we had from them, both explicitly and implicitly um, when we first uh, onboarded them. Um, so I'll just give a random example. If, if someone that we onboard who says, Hey, you know, I, I'm going to have very, very little input into investment decisions. Uh, I, I know you guys are the pros of this. I'll let you handle it. We're going to stick with the plan, et cetera. And then, you know, something like yesterday happens where the market's down, not even a few percent, but it got a little wiggly. Um, and they, you know, call us and say, I want to sell everything right now, right now. Like, I, I, I can't stand this. And, and we say, hey, um, you know, we talked about this plan. It's a, it's a multi-year plan, ideally multi-decade plan. Like, we, this, these sorts of things will happen. We've seen it happen. We've been through recently worse, right? You, you, please don't freak out. And they just keep on repeatedly hammering us with this and going against for recommendation, that sort of thing. We have to say from a, you know, a professional standpoint, from the point standpoint of, Hey, we're professionals. And if someone's not going to listen to us, then we're not serving them. Well, you're better off served by somebody else. Um, and so I feel like that's the way the process would go. Well, you have thought to this. No, yeah, we lay out how we're going to operate from the very beginning to all of our clients. Saying this is how we're going to operate. You know, this is how often we trade. These are the type of things we buy, and this is how often we communicate with you. So all that's laid out, and and basically, yeah, it's it's basically when when that's laid out, and but it's sort of like it's not what the client is, you know. When it's laid out on a piece of paper, I think client a client could realize, oh, okay, I can accept this. But you know, when when you know when it's sort of like uh, things actually happen, and when quote unquote stuff hits the fan, so to speak, right? Uh, like yesterday, uh, people didn't realize what what sort of person they are, and they have a first instinct to do things. And part of our job is try to basically uh, you know keep people from doing. You know, keep people from doing their, you know, sort of like perform their worst instincts type of deal. But, uh, you know, we're mostly successful with all of our clients in that regard, but sometimes we're not. And, and, and those are the type of clients that, will, even though we try our hardest, we just couldn't help. Uh, those will, would be the ones that we unfortunately had to let go. So, so from the number of, number of customers or clients you have, what percentage have stayed with you? Like, I have to imagine it's a pretty high percentage of the still with you, right? That you very lose a cut client, right? You have that percentage? I think more than 96%-ish. Oh, wow. Wait, you've actually done the math on this. I've done the math on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So pretty nice. high, pretty high. Yeah. 
So next, you brought up a good point. Can you talk about how everything in the world connected? Like, I think you're talking about like the Chinese, there was a Chinese market property company that's going over, something like that's going under. Can you talk about, and most regular America, like, you know, what, what is what happened in China matter to me, right? But it does matter, right? How all these markets are interconnected and like one bad thing, like, you know, how is it all connected? How do you like handle all that? How do you deal with that? Well, you definitely take this one. Okay. Well, uh, so there is a large property development company in China that's having some liquidity issues right now. Basically, they have a lot of debt outstanding and uh, they only have so much cash and they're having trouble uh, paying the interest on the debt as well as well as paying off the debt when they become due. Uh, so given that this is, I think, the second largest property development company in China, they basically buy up a lot of natural resources to do construction in China. So in terms of concrete, uh, steel, copper, uh, all that uh, is sort of affected by uh, basically, you know, property development in China. And, and you know, and basically, so basically, if, if they were to go away all of a sudden, and all their developments were seized, um, there would be a dramatic decrease in demand for these natural resources. And uh, I think there's definitely a lot of companies in the US that basically export these resources to China for this purpose. So that's sort of like a, a direct way of basically, um, you know, uh, US companies will be affected by anything that's going on in China right now. I mean, indirectly speaking, sort of like, uh, if there's a if there's a sentiment shift in China, all the, all all other property development companies and all other Chinese companies, for example, uh, basically now are under a microscope about what might happen. You know, is sort of like is uh, is is a new party line going to be sort of to our favor? So th there might be a, a repositioning of basically how much Chinese exposure uh, investors want to have in their portfolio. And basically, if they were to sell down and, and sort of redeploy the capital elsewhere, things of that nature, that, that will, 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 I would call, have an indirect impact on this, basically how sort of like the world goes. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, given how interconnected the world is these days, uh, I, I believe like the so-called butterfly effect is, uh, is becoming ever more prevalent, where basically a butterfly flaps its wings in the South Pacific and it can cause a hurricane in, you know, in, in the Atlantic, things of that nature. I think, you know, it's, everything's more interconnected and, you know, uh, and there are significantly more unintended consequences of when things happen, you know, across the globe and how would it impact us? I'll add to oh, Okay. Uh, just on this point that uh, we've always told people um, and in uh, shows in the in our actively managed portfolios as well that we've been super selective about how we choose to engage with Chinese securities, partially for this reason, the, the government risk of, hey, the government can change its regulatory stance at any point and basically with no pushback from the companies themselves. Um, and also partially because um, you can't always trust the accounting that comes from from China uh, Chinese companies. So um, it, it's just the nature of the capital markets there, uh, unfortunately. And uh, that's uh, you know we we take that risk into into consideration when thinking about them. So in our pre talk, we talked briefly about a, a bill in the house right now. Can you, can you expand on that and how that's going to affect people? Okay, so I'll, I'll go. I'll take this one. So I've, so basically, I think the House Ways and Means Committee. 
basically voted on a bill as a part of sort of like the uh, aggregate $3.5 trillion dollar, uh, infrastructure spending. And within it, there are certain provisions that would basically uh, change the way that Americans can save for and also invest for retirement. Um, now, you know, obviously, it's, everything is in preliminary stages. There hasn't been a full House vote yet. And obviously, even if there was a full House vote, uh, the Senate would have to vote on the same thing. And then there will be a reconciliation process. So, you know, it's, it's not 100% for certain that every single one of these provisions in this bill will be, you know, ultimately passed and signed into law by the president. But, you know, f- from our perspective, obviously, you know, we, we you know, want to basically analyze situations for our clients based on laws as is, but we, we're also cognizant of things that could change and come down the pipeline. And, and basically, you know, we wanted to make sure that, you know, to say anybody's listening to this, that, that, you know, they tried and basically, you know, read some of the key provisions in this bill and see how it would impact them. And if they feel like it would impact them in a adverse manner that they cannot handle, I think it would be an opportunity for them to basically express that point of view to their locally elected representative and senator. Thank you. Dan, do you have anything to add? Um, we were in business when the uh, tax cuts and jobs at the Trump tax bill uh, passed. And when that happened, there was a lot of scrambling that went on uh, among uh, people who were affected by that. I think the thing that affected the most Americans like right off the bat was there was a deadline for uh, state and local property, uh, state and local taxes, the, the salt tax cap um, that uh, some people try to prepay their property taxes and things like that and kind of really get that done before the deadline happened. Um, there's a chance that something like that will happen again, which is why we pay attention. Um, but also the other lesson from that is that people were scrambling back then and it was a major overhaul of the tax code but ultimately life goes on um, the tax code cha- has changed uh, you know uh, numerous times over the over the decades and life will go on none of this is uh, going to be um, you know a game stopping sort of uh, development so how do you two keep track of all these changes like those federal changes sort of state changes city changes what is like you, you get you get like updates from somewhere? How do you keep track of all this? Yeah, that's a great question. So at the local level, it's impossible for us to say, oh yeah, I know exactly what's going on with you know Dallas taxes and San Antonio taxes and wherever, you know, the Chicago taxes or, or you know, some municipality outside of Chicago um, where a client might reside. It's impossible for us to keep track of all of that. However, we do keep track of the major trends um, that happen in uh, you know, the certainly at the national level and oftentimes at the state level as well. We're in places where we have a lot of clients and also where we know clients are particularly sensitive to these tax changes. Um, but in the end, um, we are not uh, tax advisors. We don't tell anybody what to put on their 1040 and their tax return. 
and you know, with the IRS is the problem, CPAs and uh, qualified tax professionals who we can either refer our clients out to or help them evaluate whether or not they're just doing a good job. Um, and so those are going to be the folks who are uh, going to be most useful in ultimately you know, making sure that your uh, your tax situation is properly prepared and uh, you know complete and uh, not in uh, conflict with any new laws, regulations. We do help with tax planning, though, and that's part of what we do. Anyone who comes to talk to us who wants to under- better understand how taxes might affect them, we are 100%. That's part of the conversation we have. So you two already talked about this, but can you go in more detail, like how the company got started, what you're focused on right now for your company, and what's the vision for the company going forward? Okay. Um, so as far as how it got started, the two of us, both we support in our careers where we had a confluence of a few different things. Uh, one was um, we were stable enough financially uh, with the jobs our, our wives had, um, things like that, where we knew we could launch something ourselves. Two was we were motivated to do financial planning and investing our own way, as opposed to doing it for previous employers that would dictate um, the way we did things. Um, and so starting our own business made sense there. And three, um, we both had young kids at the time and you know, we were both working long hours uh, for the employers that we had uh you know anyone who knows anything about the hedge fund industry knows that it's not uh known for being a a great place to, to raise kids in and a great place for for easy working conditions uh so way was definitely looking for a change from that at the time um and so kind of those confluence of those three factors at that time made it a good a good uh, chance for us to work together. Um, where we are today is we're at about 53 or 54 million or so in assets under management, uh, about 150 clients, as I mentioned before. And we're trying to figure out, you know, where we go from here. We feel like we're at the point where we're at long-term sustainability, but I, this is the point where I want to turn it over away because she and I have talked about this a lot about where do we go from here. Uh, but I'm kind of curious to hear what's on his mind about what he sees as, uh, you know, what the next few years looks like. Thanks, Dan. Um, so like Dan said, I think gotcha. we, we, we're at a point where uh, we, we reach sort of like sustainability as a business. I think we've always targeted about 50 million investors on management where we are sustainable. And above and beyond that, sort of is, is a philosophical choice as to whether or not we want, run to, we want to continue to run the business as a quote unquote lifestyle business, or we want to basically really hamper up and you know put it into overdrive and basically a, a transition the business into sort of like you know its own entity. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like, even if Dan and I were to go away, uh, the business itself would still stand, so to speak. And yeah, we haven't made a really like decision on it because um, I think over the short term, uh, I think you know we're, we 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 want to grow selectively, and you know obviously continue to uh, onboard more clients who we are aligned with, and then sort of like once we hit, I guess the the two hundred client mark, uh, then. Really thinking about uh, hiring somebody because you know Dan and I know each other for so long and so well uh, that it would be impossible to replicate that with anybody else. And I think you know 
one of the major challenges uh, in corporate America is, you know, HR, human resource management. How does sort of like somebody who is in a higher level of responsibility deal with somebody who's just recently entered the firm? Uh, and, and basically, and as we, so Dan and I sort of really have to think about that uh, before pulling trigger and, and, and finding a good fit. Uh, because I think if we screw up on that, uh, that would you know, really hamper the future growth and development of the firm. So luckily, we're not at that point yet. So I, I think over the next couple of years, as we get to 200 clients, and so as we get to, I don't know, 100 million AUM, uh, that's something that we would think about. And once we make a decision on that, then we would have, have sort of like, we would have more emphasis on thinking about what to, how to grow the firm five, 10, 15 years from now and seeing, so, and try to figure out what, what sort of company we want, we want to manage versus where it is currently, so. So Dana Way, is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't, or is there anything else I want to talk about that we haven't covered so far? So we talked about the kind of current events with the with the uh, with the tax bill. Um, I know that's something that we wanted to cover that we kind of talked about before. Um, hmm. Oh, Jason, you wanted to talk about bunker a little bit that we oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah I forgot yeah. about that. Let's talk about yeah, bunker. Yeah. So yeah. Dan, what's what's so we both volunteer on Bunker Labs. Can you talk some about your experience with Bunker Labs and what they do? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I don't remember how I ended up in my first Bunker Labs event, although I do remember the event. It was in the Bay Area, um, and uh, a gentleman at the, uh, named Derek Distenfeld uh, was the Bunker Labs um, city leader at the time uh, in the Bay Area. And it was a, a pretty brand new organization at the time. I don't remember how I got there, but I was looking at a network of that. So uh, I had a great time at that event and just kept on going to more events um, with uh, Bunker Labs in the Bay Area. And then it came time, uh, Justine Evers uh, took uh, charge of the Bunker Labs chapter over in Bay Area, and she um, you know, did a great job over there. We had great events at, like, at Box, at Dropbox, at um, all sorts of different companies. Um, and we had the, the beginning of the WeWork partnership and things like that. So that, that all went really, really well. And because I knew Justine well, she also uh, she moved up uh, within the market ranks, made the recommendation for 2018, along with you, Jason. You're, you're also long-serving as well. Uh, and Bunker's been a great organization here in Seattle. It's uh, definitely been, uh, I think, a, a new flavor of a service organization that hasn't existed uh, too much before, which is uh, an organization that's focused on, um, uh, not solely, but oftentimes, uh, the, the, a lot of post-9-11 vets uh, want to uh, come in and be part of it. Um, and also businesses that they those vests want to run, whether it's technology or certain types of retail services businesses. Um, it's Bunker Labs keeps up with the times, and that's really, really great. And not just vets, of course, but also any military-connected entrepreneurs, whether it's veteran families, spouses, um, things like that, children, vets. Um, it's been really, really rewarding experience for me, and I just really, really feel 
unfortunate bad um, that COVID's hampered so much of uh, what bunkers traditionally offered in person meetings, in person events. Um, when hopefully, uh, you know, the health conditions permit, I look forward to with you, Jason, and, uh, you know, whoever else is on the team at the time firing up bunker uh, back to its uh, full self again here in Seattle and uh, again, getting those events going because I really miss those. Yes. So wait, how about you? Anything else that I asked you that I didn't or anything else you want to talk about? No, I think uh, you covered everything that we want to talk about. So thank you, Jason. Really appreciate it. So I understand you two, you two have something for our listeners. Yes. Um, so if anyone wants to talk to us about financial planning, um, or investments, anything like that at any time. Um, you can reach me at dan at triple summit.com or way at way at triple summit.com. That's W E I, uh, for way. Um, you can reach out to us anytime. Uh, we're always happy to take a call or email, uh, to chat uh, about financial planning investments. We don't care whether or not, uh, the person we're speaking to ultimately becomes a client or not. We just want to help out. Uh, that is 100% uh, been the way we've grown the business. And it's worked out really well for us because even if the person we're talking to is ultimately not a fit or isn't even looking to work with a financial planner formally, if they have a good experience with us, if they have a good engagement with us, then what ends up happening is they tell other people who might want to formally work with us about us. And that ends up working out uh, very, very well. And it's been the way we've you know grown primarily uh, to uh, to to the highest degree um uh this has been the way we've grown so anyone who wants to reach out again dan at triple summit.com way at triple summit.com um you can reach out to us we'd be more than happy to chat and, and can you share social media platforms that you might use so people can reach out to you on there also or yes. yourself or your company yeah, so you can definitely, so our website is uh, triplesummit.com. Um, you can definitely find us on Facebook as well. Uh, search for Triple Summit Advisors. That's their full name. Um, we're on LinkedIn as well. You can find us there with both Dan Connie Boss and Wei Wang. Um, so those are the primary places to find us on social media and online. Um, nice. And for our listeners, we have the links to their gifts and the social media on our show notes. Find us on us at www.cabinetshlblog.com. And be sure to share this episode with your friends and subscribe to Jason Cabinet Experience. Also, I want to take the opportunity now to thank Dan and Wade for supporting our crowdfunding campaign a few months ago. So, so thank you for that very much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're happy to be supporters of Cabinet HR. Of course. So next question. Um, what do you do as far as social media for your company? Like, are you active um, on there? Like, do you like push like newsletters out? Like, how do you utilize that? This has been a challenge. This has been a challenge for us. Uh, this is part of the problem of being a two-person team. Um, if we had somebody who was kind of a multi uh, or jack of all trades, a bit of a generalist who could do administrative work for us, some marketing, social media work for us, we'd be a lot more active uh, about it. But we're just limited in the amount of time that we have. Our clients come first. And so let's say we're preparing a, a blog post or a series of blog posts or things to do on social media and a client has a, an issue that comes up or they have a question that comes up, um, they're always going to get the priority. That's just the way we run things. That's the way we, you know, that's our value. Those are our values. Um, and so because it's the two of us, we are constrained on that. I mean, we, we hope, we know it limits our business growth, but we hope it doesn't detract from the client experience. Um, I don't think our clients are clamoring for us to be more active on social media. 
but it is it is a, a, a problem of in terms of business growth and, and kind of like where we're going with the business. So we have to figure that out. We, we have not figured that out for sure. Yeah. Can you talk about this? I, I think one thing is entrepreneurs don't talk about enough, right? Like talk about the grind, the hard work, whatever, but thing is life goes on, right? Like you still have to wash clothes, still have to take your car in. You still have to, you know, make the wife happy, you know, can you talk about those other stuff you have to do? Like that doesn't stop and how you, how you like process all that and still be successful. All right. I'm going to think about this one for a second way. If you have thoughts that come immediately to your mind, please take it. Uh, it's, 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 it's a balancing act. Um, I think one of the things that, that people struggle with in America and across, across the world is sort of a how to balance sort of like their career versus all the responsibilities they have to their kids, their wife, uh, their significant other, sorry, uh, and, and basically their friends, right? Um, because we only have 24 hours uh, during, in a day. And uh, the more we spend, the more time we spend on one thing, as less we have in terms of time to spend on, on something else. So, uh, so basically, I think what's fortunate for me and Dan is that our scheduling is relatively flexible. Uh, you know, because we are quote unquote our own bosses, we can set our own hours. So I can work at any time and I could be sort of doing something else that my wife wants me to do at any other time as well. And that's the goal for both of us. So because we have that flexibility, I think uh, it's been easier to basically uh, negotiate with our significant others and negotiate with our kids and, and our friends basically to basically uh, maintain the relationships that we have uh, in that regard, um, we don't have, we don't necessarily offer up the excuse saying, oh, we, we you know, we, we have work, uh, you know, for a lot of different things. So having that flexibility is really key for both me and Dan. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's about sort of like devoting, devoting necessary amount of time and hours and, and um, basically an effort into maintaining these relationships. Cause, you know, a lot of times sort of like, you know, people come up, come back from work after, you know, when it's five or six or seven and they're really tired and it's, uh, it's hard for them to then you know, pick up the phone or, uh, or go somewhere to meet up with their friends and, and basically, and, and basically uh, chat and anything, everything that we do in that regard is, is a, is a way to maintain and grow, grow a relationship. So uh, the way Dan, I feel basically is, 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 is a matter of, of practice. And basically, even when you're really tired, you know, it's got to, Try your hardest to basically reach out and uh, and talk to your friends, talk with your wife, talk with your kids, keep it keep an open dialogue, and I think you know that's that will make you more fulfilled any given more time, any given moment in time than any dollar amount in bank account bank account ever will. I'd add to yeah that uh, I agree with Way one hundred percent. Uh, and I'd add that, um, you know, the, the, someone else said this, uh, that saying no is a superpower. Um, learn how to say no to things uh, that try to cut out the more extraneous parts of your life. And they'll, they'll creep in. People will always request things of you, especially if you're the type that likes networking or, you know, knows the value of networking. Things like that. People are always going to request things of you. And you just have to know where and when to say no. Uh, so that you can, it's, it's not an easy skill to develop. I, I certainly still work at it and struggle at it myself. Um, but, uh, try to, try to stick with that, try to simplify as much as possible so that you can really focus on the things that, are, that matter. So Dan, anyway, we're kind of the end of our talk. Can you give us any wisdom or advice on anything you want to talk about? 
Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll go first on this. And, uh, uh, you know, we had, uh, clients yesterday again, when the, the market went a little sideways, just a little bit yesterday who kind of, uh, wavered a little bit and got worried, uh, they probably watch a little too much, uh, financial news and things like that. Um, what I would like to say is that basic blocking and tackling works. A lot of folks come to us and say, oh, my friends achieved this, you know, how can I be here in five years or two years, or I want this now, right? And they're like, and then they might say something like that, oh, well, I've seen this asset, you know, crypto or whatever it might be, has gone up, you know, 300% in the last two months. Like, how do we get born to this? That sort of thing. And there may be a time and place for all this, uh, but you have to get your basic blocking and tackling down first. It, it seems boring. It seems like, why is this necessary? But all of us, when we're going through school, we learn basic grammar, we learn basic arithmetic, we learn, um, you know, basic uh, approaches to foreign languages first before we do the advanced stuff. Um, getting your financial house in order, the basis of financial planning, the basis of, um, you know, getting drawing down your consumer debt, maximizing your retirement accounts, having an emergency fund, all these basics are super duper important. They will set you up for long-term financial success. Um, it's not something that you have to work on an advisor with. You can read tons of great books out there that talk about it. Uh, financial Planning for Dummies by Eric Tyson is one I recommend all the time. And it's um, you know uh, basically soup to nuts textbook on how to do uh, financial planning for, your, for yourself. Um, if you do this, you will be in much better position than 95% of Americans. And then the world becomes your oyster for that. You have so many options once you get your financial life in order. Um, and then if you want to talk about investing in crypto and, and, and speculating in that, have at it. But please, please, please get your basics down. If you don't know what those basics are, uh, like I said, you can read a book um, or chat with us. We're happy to. Again, whether or not you want to work with us, we're happy to chat and, and help anyone along their journey to feeling more secure in uh, their financial plan. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to stress that last point in that uh, you are not alone. Um, basically, any like Dan and I, we're, we're very happy. We're very passionate to talk about financial planning, investment management to anybody who's interested, because a lot of times we feel like people, uh, they sort of like, they feel like they want, they have to do something alone, or basically they feel compelled by the outside pressures that they face that they have to do X, Y, and Z same things. And when it's more beneficial for them to sit down, take a deep breath, and then talk to somebody who's like, you know, objective third party who can offer advice without any incentives behind it. And that's what Dan and I do. I mean, uh, like we're financial advisors, obviously, you know, uh, this is how we make a living. But when we talk to anybody, we always view it as sort of like uh, in a situation where basically we want us, we want our clients and we want people to talk to, to succeed, you know, regardless of circumstances. And we will offer, always offer our honest, transparent, and sort of like unbiased opinion on anything that we talk about. And that's sort of, that's, that's the most important thing to realize that you're not alone and there's always somebody that you can talk to. It doesn't have to be us. It could be somebody else. So. The last question, what do you two do for fun? 
Um, I, I will out myself here. Anyone who's watched this long, uh, gets, uh, the way he's laughing so hard. Anyone who, who, who's watched this long gets to, gets to see this. I, uh, I play, uh, a little card game called Magic the Gathering for fun. That's what I do. Um, so uh, I, I find it to be strategically super duper um, uh, deep. And so it challenges my mind a lot. Uh, it has a lot of the um, kind of variance that comes from poker too. So if you like playing poker, a lot of poker pros actually play Magic as well. Um, and uh, it's something I can do in the pandemic. It's, all, it's online, uh, which is nice. So that's what I do uh, for fun when I'm not chasing around my kids, which seems to be all the time. <laughs> so that's me. Yeah. Um, yes. So I think for me, like uh, my wife and I really are were pretty avid moviegoers, but with the pandemic, we haven't been back to a movie theater yet. I think uh, we're hoping to hit a theater soon to watch Shang-Chi and the, and the Ten Rings pretty soon because I think that's the first big one that's come out since the pandemic that, that seems to be uh, pretty awesome and worthy to go to go to the theater for. And, and beyond uh, beyond that, sort of like, uh, I, I, so I enjoy sort of like a lot of sort of like walking and like on trails. Uh, I've done that with my my son whenever I can, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't play magic, but I do, I do play my fair share of computer games as well. So yeah, pretty much. So, Wayne Dan, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you, Jason, for having thank us. You, Jason, really appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up.